0: We start a brand new series this week called My Time Has Come. Jesus is in the final weeks of his life. He and his disciples, the people and the religious leaders are all at a crossroads. Will Jesus be the Messiah King they expect or will Rome crush Israel once again? And what will happen to the temple and to Jerusalem? What will happen to Jesus? Jesus' whole focus shifts to one of warning. There is serious danger ahead, both immediately, physically, and all the way to the end times and the day of the Lord. In this series, Jesus will talk to the disciples about what to expect in the times to come. He tells them what signs to watch for, how to know who they can trust or not trust, and as we walk with Jesus now, we'll hear him speak of the need to work diligently in the kingdom while he is gone. He calls his followers to prepare, to get ready, because what we do while he's gone matters. As we open our series, Jesus has made it safely to Jericho. He's now heading out towards Jerusalem. He's relatively safe since there's a huge crowd following him. And according to Luke, these people fully expect the kingdom of God to appear immediately on the spot. I mean, after all, if Jesus is the Messiah, they are looking for him to usher in the day of the Lord. And they're not going to react peacefully to anyone trying to arrest Jesus. This day of the Lord and Messiah stuff is what legends are made of for Jewish kids growing up in Palestine. These are the stories told around the campfire. The people know these old prophecies have yet to be fulfilled. All of the Jews know that one day God himself is going to show up. Their enemies will get what's coming to them. And Israel will come out on top of the heap. These old stories are not usually part of a Christian's childhood education. So let's pretend that we are young Jewish kids in Jesus' day and age and listen to the story together. Prepare to be astonished as we hear the words of Isaiah, Joel, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, and Micah. The scripture references are on the screen as I go along, but these excerpts and many others like them pervade the books of Hebrew prophecy. I've I've only pulled out the few needed to form the bare bones of the story. Um, If you were in any of the series uh, that we did in the Hebrew Bible, you'll know that we did not study the the each prophet's book separately instead I pulled the the actual character of the prophet into the story within the context of the king that he was prophesying to and the the events of his day um so we we um kind of got a piecemeal idea of the prophets this is a completely different way to look at them what I've done here is I've pulled out from from these prophets, uh, a really good sample for you of all the um, unfulfilled prophecy around the day of the Lord and the Messiah. And I'm going to give you a sort of mashup. So you get a broader feel um, of, of the prophet's message as a body of prophets. And I'm also telling it as a mashup because that's how the stories like this live in people's hearts. So here we go. On that great and terrible day of the Lord, the Lord will muster the hosts of haughty ones and the kings of the earth together like prisoners and after many days will call them to account. Let the nations come for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision therefore wait for me says the lord for the day i rise up as a witness to pour my indignation my burning anger out on the assembled kingdoms all the earth will be devoured by the way the nations and kingdoms in view here are the koyim the gentile nations the enemies of israel who have oppressed her cruelly one after another for centuries The end time, when God sets everything right, is prophesied to be literally earth shattering and cataclysmic. We're just, you know, skimming the top of these ancient stories. There are many more similar prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. I will wipe out everything, man, animal, birds, fish. I will overthrow the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. Now, as an aside, this wiping out of everything seems to be in the context of everything that is haughty and oppressive. Zephaniah actually goes on to include all idols in this category. And stumbling blocks in this context have consistently meant obstacles thrown up by the unjust and powerful to obscure God's love and mercy for his people. The Lord continues. I will search Jerusalem and will muster all the congealed who say the Lord will do nothing. That is such an interesting choice of words. It literally means congealed in dregs. And it brings to mind that, you know, congealed scum at the bottom of an unwashed cup. That's the word being used for these people. These are people who think the Lord is not paying attention, so they pervert justice and hoard power. They will be called to account. The great day of the Lord is near and coming quickly, a day of distress and anguish, trouble and ruin, darkness and gloom, trumpets and battle cries. Terrible distress will come upon all people because they have sinned against Yahweh, and neither their silver nor their gold will save them. They will all be consumed. Now, that gives you an idea of the level of the Lord's wrath against the haughty and the congealed, those who think the Lord doesn't care about justice. The Lord most definitely does care, and will not let evil stand forever. Evil will be wiped out wherever it hides. As it turns out, all those nations that Joel said will be gathered together in the Valley of Decision, do not repent. Instead, they will fight against Jerusalem, and it will be a day of terrible suffering for Israel. The city will be captured and ransacked, Half the people will be taken into exile. So obviously, this end time day of the Lord spans more than one day. This can't all happen in a single 24 hours. And the prophets acknowledge this. It will be a day known only to the Lord with neither day nor night. There will be light at evening time. On that day, the Lord will stand on the Mount of Olives, and the mountain itself will split in two. Then the Lord will come with all the holy ones with him. On that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem continually, winter and summer, half flowing towards the west and half flowing towards the east. This is another indication that the day of the Lord spans quite a long period. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. His name will be the only name. Plagues will strike the nations that fought against Israel, and their survivors will go to Jerusalem every year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. If I am a Jewish kid listening to all of this, one of the takeaways I would have is that even after all evil is wiped out, there are still survivors, even among the Gentile nations who fought against Israel. People survive all this. Let's see what happens next. That day is great. There is not another one like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress but he will be saved. Now, Jacob is another name for Israel. The day of the Lord is called Jacob's distress because of the awful things that happened to Jerusalem at the hands of the Gentile nations before the Lord finally comes and turns the tide of the battle. The Lord comes to save Israel. I will break their yoke and tear off their chains. Never again will they be slaves. Jerusalem will never again be destroyed. It will be safe. So rejoice, sons of Zion, rejoice in the Lord your God, for you will be vindicated. I will make up to you for the years the locusts have eaten. This honestly is a verse that lives deep in my heart. This is what I cling to. In the tough times of loss, this is what I trust and believe in, that the Lord will not only set everything right, but he will restore and redeem all that death and evil have taken from us. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame and the outcasts and make them a strong nation. I will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. Rejoice, daughter Zion, for the Lord has pardoned you. The king of Israel is in your midst. You shall no longer fear disaster. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And those left in Jerusalem will be called holy. When the Lord has purged the filth by a spirit of judgment and of fire. That phrase, branch of the Lord, is a reference to the Messiah throughout the Hebrew Bible. And notice how explicit this prophecy is about the spirit of judgment and fire being one that purges but does not destroy the people involved. And as we know, that spirit of judgment and of fire is none other than the Holy Spirit. That is a fire of purification and life, not a fire of death and torture. The fire from God, the fire of the Holy Spirit is like a refiner's fire purging away our impurities and leaving the purest of gold within us. The Gentile nations Will bring all the Jews who have been scattered among them back to Jerusalem. They'll bring them back on anything, any sort of conveyance they can find on horses, in chariots, on stretchers, on mules, and on camels. They will bring them back. They will bring them like an offering to the Lord in Zion. Lord, here are your people. In that day, you will feel no more shame for I will remove the proud ones from your midst and you shall not be haughty on my holy mountain anymore. I don't know if you've caught the drift here, but what the Lord hates most is the haughty and the proud, the selfish and the self-serving. So in the end today, the Lord will remove all who accuse and shame us. It doesn't say he tortures them to death. He simply moves them away (laughs) so they will have no more power to hurt us. He says, I will leave the humble and the poor in your midst. They will trust Yahweh. They will do no injustice and tell no lies. This is a passage worth meditating on, isn't it? This is what it looks like when God comes in power to set everything right. I will pour on the house of David and the people of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they pierced and mourn as for a firstborn, as for an only child. Christians, of course, see Jesus in this passage. A Jew in Roman Palestine might also think of the Messiah, sent by a God whose heart has been pierced by unfaithfulness over many centuries. He will administer justice from Jerusalem, and the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. There will be no more war, nor even any training for war. There are many references to the Lord, um, He, in these passages, in these prophecies. As a Christian, you may be wondering whether they're talking about God the Father or about Jesus the Messiah. (laughs) They are, of course, one and the same Holy Spirit. But I find it easiest to keep things straight in my head if I visualize all these end-time prophecies as referring to the second coming of Christ. People have different opinions, of course, but you can usually tell from the context that the Lord in view is the Messiah. Here's an example from Isaiah 11. It uses branch language, which we know refers specifically to the Messiah. From the root of Jesse, who was King David's father, shall come a branch and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, power and might, knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. That's obviously Messiah language. He will judge the poor and the meek rightly with justice. And with his breath, he will slay the wicked. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the calf. A little child will lead them. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. The Lord will not only restore Israel, he will restore the entire world. There are many passages that talk about restoration of the whole world. But this last part of Isaiah 65 is an example. I will create new heavens and a new earth. You won't even remember the old ones. I will delight in my people and weeping and crying will never again be heard in Jerusalem. Never again will an infant live only a few days. The age of a hundred will be considered young. My people will enjoy the fruits of their own labor. Before my people even call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. How beautiful is that? So like God, this is God's will for the entire world. This kind of closeness with us is the core of God's desire. This is what we were created for. Now that was quite a story. And all of this is the stuff the Jews of Palestine have been raised on. This is the great hope of their people. This is what they carry in their hearts. This is what keeps them going even as they are being crushed by the Romans. So let's pull this all together and distill these prophecies down to their essential points so we know who the Jews of Palestine think Jesus is and what they are expecting him to do as the Messiah. First off, they're expecting someone fully human. Jesus is, in fact, totally throwing things off by insisting he is in God and that he is God's son. They they were, you know, expecting a Jew from Bethlehem descended humanly from King David. Third, as you can see from all these prophecies, they are expecting the Messiah to show up with overwhelming military force conquering all of Israel's enemies and restoring her, not only as a sovereign nation, but as the most sovereign nation of all. The Messiah will be a wise and righteous judge who restores justice and rules over the world from Jerusalem. He will gather all the Jews back to Israel from all over the world, and he will put an end to all wickedness and sin this is what the people the Jews of Palestine expect Jesus to be if he is the messiah and as you can see in the prophecies they expect this all to like happen suddenly and last a long time so people are following Jesus around waiting for this to happen like any minute now so Jesus has got to set them straight he now knows the day of the Lord is not today he now knows he will be tortured and killed and that after he is gone the people will still need to be looking forward to the day of the Lord they need to not sink into despair when this doesn't turn out with Jesus like they expect it to. It's a tricky message to get across that he is the Messiah, but the timing of the day of the Lord is not what they've been expecting. So Jesus tells them another parable to help them understand. It's found in Luke 19 and also in Matthew 25. I think Luke's version has been embellished with some distracting bits that don't sound like Jesus at all and also serve to um, obscure the bones of Jesus' point. So I'm going to tell you the version in Matthew. I think it's much closer to what Jesus probably said. You can read Luke's version on your own. Jesus says, Once upon a time, a man was about to leave on a journey. So he called his servants to him and handed his possessions over to them. To one servant, he gave five bags of gold. To another, he gave two bags of gold. And to a third, he gave one bag of gold, each one according to his ability. And then he left on his journey. The man who received five bags took them right down and invested them. And he ended up earning another five bags. The man who received two bags did the same. And he ended up with another two bags. But that little man who received one bag went and buried the treasure and left it there. After a long time, the master finally returned from his journey. He called each of the servants in to settle accounts with them. The servant who'd been given five bags said, Look, master, you gave me five bags and I've acquired five more. And his master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over these few things, so I will set you over many things. I am very happy with you. The servant who'd been given two bags said, look, master, you gave me two bags and I've acquired two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over these few things, so I will set you over many things. I am very happy with you. Finally, the servant who'd been given one bag came and said, master, I know you are a hard man You reap what you do not sow and harvest where you did not scatter. So I was afraid. And after you left, I buried your gold in the ground. Here, here is what belongs to you. But the master said, you wicked, lazy servant. You know then that I expect to reap where I did not sow? You should have at least put my money in the bank so I would have had it back with interest. Then he ordered, take the money away from him and give it to the servant who has 10 bags. For to whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. But to whoever has not, meaning whoever has not produced fruit or in this case invested what they were given, Even what little they have will be taken away. Throw this worthless servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that's quite a story. Now, remember that Jesus is telling this in the context of people and, of course, the disciples trailing along behind him, expecting him to miraculously bring about the end of the Roman Empire like tomorrow. But Jesus is telling them it's not going to be like that the master is going away on a long journey and is entrusting all that he possesses to them to care for and nurture and grow. Then Matthew inserts another parable that is not in any of the other gospels that I I think is significant. It's not in any of the others. Jesus says, one day, the son of man will come in glory with all the angels with him, and he'll sit on his throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. That sounds like the Hebrew prophecies we just read, doesn't it? Jesus says, the son of man will separate the people just like a shepherd does, sending the goats to his left and the sheep to his right. Then the king will say to those on his right, come those being spoken well of by my father. Inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, notice the significance of this statement. Jesus just said the son of man, which is his own name for himself that he has used consistently all the time in his teaching. The son of man will separate the sheep and the goats. Then the king will speak to the sheep on his right. Now, Jesus has never talked like that. Sheep and goats sounds like Jesus, other earthy sort of parables. But linking the son of man title with the king title doesn't sound like him at all. So I'm starting to feel a little red flag here. Has this parable been co-mingled with the Persian ideas of an afterlife that are popular among the people of this time. Um, In one of our earlier class series, we ran across this um, little kind of uh, popular idea of the afterlife in the story of um, the the poor man, Lazarus, and the rich man, and um, we talked about it back then. Um, this has, you know, some of that same feel to it, but let's keep going. Holding this little anomaly aside for the moment. We continue. Jesus says, when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a foreigner, you took me in. And when I was naked, you wrapped garments around me. I was sick and you looked in on me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the just ones will answer, When did we ever do that? We don't remember doing any of those things for you. And the king will answer, Whatever you did for the weakest or the least important of my brothers, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Get out of here, you who are cursed. Go into the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, wait a minute. Nowhere else has Jesus taught that people will be sent into an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In fact, this is the opposite of what we just saw in the prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. And it's not consistent with Jesus' previous teachings. When Jesus has taught before, he's always spoken in terms of plants or trees that have been tended but have withered and failed to produce fruit. They're already dead, and Jesus consistently says they will be gathered up and thrown onto the trash heap, Gehenna, because there simply isn't anything else to do with them. They've already become separated from the life-giving vine. They're already dead, and nothing but death can come from them. So this weird statement in Matthew sounds to me like Jesus' words have been intertwined with a modern cultural story. You may have a different opinion. Many other Christians do, and we'll talk about it more in our breakout groups. But for me, this is a second major red flag. Jesus continues to talk to the goats who are supposedly cursed, saying, For I was hungry and thirsty, and you gave me nothing. I was a foreigner and you did not take me in. I was naked and you did not wrap a garment around me. I was in prison and you did not come to me. Now that part definitely sounds like something Jesus would say. It's almost, it's almost like the story has is in two layers. One layer is what Jesus said. And then there's this Persian sounding theological you know, overlay on top of it. Those on the left will say, when did we see you like this and fail to help you? And the king will reply, I tell you for sure, if you did not do these things for those who are the weakest or the least important, then you did not do them for me. And away those folks will go to eternal punishment while the just will go into eternal life. Now, there may be some serious cultural wrapping paper here. I think we need to talk this through in our breakout groups. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. We'll compare this parable to some of Jesus' other teachings about the end time to see if we can boil it down to Jesus' core message overall. Well, I hope that was an interesting discussion, and I I hope that the story of the end time, uh, Day of the Lord, gave you kind of a good backdrop for how Jesus' parables and, you know, who Jesus is, is landing um, with these folks. So in the the, um, uh, uh, breakout groups, I brought forward three other teachings that Jesus did. One was that we want to compare to Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats. So another one that is actually in Matthew also (laughs) is the the whole parable about bad weeds being mixed in with the good weeds. and, And when Jesus explained that to the disciples, he told them that the field is the world. The good seeds are people of the kingdom. Um, sown by the son of man you know this is this is us being thrown out in the world to to do the work of the kingdom um, and the bad seeds are 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 the people of the evil one in this parable sown by the devil at the end of the age Jesus says the son of man will send his angels to harvest the field and weed out everything that causes sin and everyone who does evil and they'll be thrown into this furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth while the just will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Uh, the other par- uh, passage that I brought forward, which was also another parable, was in Luke 13, where Jesus, uh, somebody asked Jesus if if um, there only a few people are going to be saved then, you know, and he says, well, once the owner of the house shuts the door, those left outside are going to want into the party saying they are his friends, but he will say, be gone. You doers of evil. I do not know you and you will weep and wail and gnash your teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, while you're thrown out. Um, And the third passage I brought forward was um, Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And this is where Jesus, in, in uh, John 3, where Jesus is talking to a religious leader who is struggling to understand who Jesus is. And Jesus just looks at him and says, you know what, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save, heal, you know, make it whole. Whoever believes is not condemned and whoever does not believe is condemned already. This is the verdict that the light came and people love the darkness because their deeds are evil and they are afraid of being exposed. Um, So the question was how, you know, if we hold all of those things as things Jesus said, along with this sheep and goats, what do we think Jesus point is? How do, we, how do we reconcile all of this?
1: We had a tough time with it. We all started with that the whole
2: thing today kind of reminded us of our upbringing in churches of, you know, going to heaven, going to hell. But then in the sessions in the Old Testament, um, when we talked, and I thought it was Erica that was making the distinction that actually fire is going to be a refining fire. And then we all agree with that, that now this reads differently than it used to. But it's still really hard to, I don't know, to segue. Are, are we just thinking that? Are we making that up to save all of ourselves? And then I made the comment that to me, the separation, the sheeps and the goats, and it kind of reminded me of the proud son. And that we didn't like that, you know, that here's the good son. So here's the sheep who've always done what they're supposed to do. And here's, here's the growing. And they have come and they all get the same thing in the end.
3: Well, Joe, our group also hit that refining fire. I think it was Shirley that brought it up about, and we also struggled with childhood indoctrination and into adulthood and setting that aside because it doesn't seem to reconcile and yet it still is indoctrinated deeply into our core and so it's difficult to embrace the new concepts sometimes without further research like there was one i i need to do some research on this Part about they will be thrown in the furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth while the just will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. I need a little more time with that. This is not enough time. And I think Lumar mentioned something absolutely beautiful about that, about looking at when the house door is closed and those are thrown out. That separation from God isn't that the ultimate misery? Mm. What what can be worse than being separated from God? What what could possibly be more than that? You know, and we discussed our faith and we also discussed other people's concepts of faith. So faith can be different concepts and we discussed. Lumar shared a, a personal story about how her faith really carried her through something so difficult, and yet she knows that there will be joy in the
0: end. Because I'd of- love to hear that story, Lumar. Would you share that? Yeah. Are you
4: comfortable sharing you were, it? You were, you were part of that story, Gail. Um, I was sharing that, I just could not imagine. Having gone through Paul's first cancer journey, um, his remission, my breast cancer, my remission, and his second cancer diagnosis and his death without my faith, without the people of God who were around me and who carried me through. Um, I, I don't know how people who don't have faith in God can do it. Um, people showed up at just the right moment. People stayed. Three three women came to the hospice hospital to, to just visit for a short time. And all three of them ended up staying overnight with me while my husband was dying on his last night. Um, that's a God thing for sure. And I just can't, and Gail was one of those people. And, I, and she, she stayed and followed the casket or the hearse to the funeral. I mean, so that I could leave and not have to watch that. And those are the kind of people that literally carried me. To me, they were like, I've heard people use the expression, Jesus with skin on in the moment. And that's how it was to me. And people would ask me, well, how did you get through all that? I, I, I can only attribute it to God. And I cannot imagine having gone through that and not having that. I, I just think that would have been so much more difficult. And it wasn't easy, but um, you know, when I when I got diagnosed with breast cancer, God gave me a verse Isaiah forty one ten. Fear not, for I am with you always. And that's that's all. <laughs>
0: Thank you.
1: I just,
2: when I started this and I said that Erica bring up the purification, I meant the class that we were in at the time that I remember her being, what if the fire is actually turning us out to be gold? That was just like very revolutionary to me and it's just really stuck in my brain. And it's kind of the
1: meter stick for me now. When I read stuff, does it hold up to this measure? That's a good
0: measure. Um, that's a good measure because um, I think I brought forward in the the lesson um, the the idea of of the Holy Spirit, you know, being a a, a spirit of judgment and fire that um, purges the evil out. You know, it's like when we go on a you know a a, a vegetable you know purge of our bodies it's it's just like um we're left the people are left it seems so clear in that in that you know passage that uh, and and also it's said ex- explicitly later um in in Paul's writing um he will say you know if you're you know building works that are you're doing things that are not of the kingdom, that man will, you know, he'll lose everything when he passes through that, that fire, you know, that purging fire. But he will still abide, Paul said. He will, he, the man will remain. It's just to be like he came through fire, you know? Um, that seems to be such a foundational concept in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. And also for Jesus, where Jesus just talks about, you know, God is not going to let evil persist. God will let people persist. God's going to redeem
1: it all. Yeah, so ahead. the right question was, Wait. then
2: where does all of this come from? Where does all this separating of heaven and hell come from, if that's the truth? And I think it was Rhonda made a, a good connection to culture. Was it Rhonda or was it Erica.
5: There you go. You now we we were talking about our I had said it could be just some of this could have been this fear-based beliefs could have been inserted with motivation to keep people in check and in line to follow the culture, to follow the politics, to get people to keep going to the church rather than having their own faith. So it's like it's a lot of times if how I'm starting to believe some of these passages is that we're all going to be standing before the Lord. We're all going to go through purification and we're all going to make it. And I think that's really difficult for some people to accept because their comeback is usually, well, then everyone's going to do whatever they want and there's going to be sin and chaos. And so part of why I think some of this fear-based beliefs were inserted is because people thought it could be a way to keep people in line and in control, potentially.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, and although there is, there does seem to be this idea that people persist in choosing self, right? Jesus consistently talks about there being, you know, the people outside knocking on the door, the the people, you know, who 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 weep and wail and gnash teeth. Not screaming in agony and dead forever. You know, it's weeping and wailing and oh, (laughs) gnashing of teeth. Um, so, so, and you have, I saw your hand up. Yes. Um, up until
6: this class, I've been feeling pretty good. Okay. (laughs) Because it's kind of been, Hey, let's be nice. And if you're nice to people, you'll, you'll get the benefit. So now you guys threw in weeds and flowers, goats and sheep, neither one of which I know what I am. And then we're back to kind of like this, things are going to be crappy for those who haven't been so cool. When all along I've been seeing this journey, kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs Hmm. and to be enlightened. So to be at peace with oneself allows you to be at peace with others. And as long as you and others are fed and clothed and have a roof, you know, things are are heading up. And then you throw in today, which now I'm not feeling so great because I'm going to be honest with you guys, whichever one is bad. I'm, I'm thinking goats are worse than sheep because goats are not quite as cute as sheep. But I'm definitely a weed and a goat. And so now where am I? What hope do
0: I have? I think I think that people get to speak for themselves. We need to let them say that. All right, that is where they are and what they feel, no matter what we think or how we see them. All right, that is where they feel uh, and, and where and where they are living. So let's take that at face value. Let's accept what Anne has said, and I, I think, think I'm both.
3: I think I'm she- a goat and a sheep, a weed and a flower. I have my moments. I'm not proud of them. I try. There, you know, except like what is it? it is in the Star Wars, they say there is no try, there is only do and do not. Well, I try. But maybe try is not enough. But it doesn't stop me from keep trying. I may never get there to what I want to be. You know, if I, if I could give all the homeless a place to live and money every time I see them and reach out and help whoever needs it, I would be so happy. However, I have limitations and I make choices about that. And sometimes that feels good. And sometimes it doesn't feel good because like I shared with our group, my husband and I know this homeless woman. Her mother is in an um, in, in a nursing home now. She's homeless. She does her best. She's got a long story. And whenever we stop at the light where she panders, Even if I don't have money to give to her, we stop and talk to her. And the reason for that is just to see her as the person she is and treat her with humanity. Because whenever you're at a stoplight and you see the pandering people, so many of us look away. It's uncomfortable. It is not something that is feels good. And, and why is that? Is it because we wish they weren't there, that they had a better situation? Do we wish we could change that situation? Are we making judgments that they're going to be smoking or drinking with the money we give them? Does it matter? Once you give something, what they do with it isn't your responsibility. Yeah. And I think we... I'm using this example because it shows the extreme range of wanting to be the change for somebody to the judgment that we might have all at the same time in the, in the, in the change of a light. But I think just acknowledging her saying hello and talking to her for that light, Sometimes I feel guilty she could get money from other cars, but she stands at my car and she talks to me and she tells me about her day. And we, we remind her to get out of the heat and give her some water if I have it. And I carry Vienna sausage and sardines and water in my car because they don't require utensils. You know, there's something. So, I don't know, that's my two cents worth. I think I'm a goat and a sheep and I go through all those emotions and a weed and a flower and I just keep trying because I try because it helps me feel better about myself but also because God loves me and I wanna do what he wants me to do for him. He gave me instructions to be kind and to love others. That's not a lot to ask. Yeah, it is. But don't we all say that?
2: Because there is a humility that I think we're all taught that we're not supposed to walk around and say, look at me, I'm the prettiest rose in the garden. And I think that when it comes down to it, do we all not say,
1: yeah, I'm going to go. Yeah, I'm a weed. Because we practice humility? I don't know. You're
0: shaking your head, Anne. What are you thinking?
6: Oh, I know lots of people who definitely have never thought they were a goat nor a weed. Pompous asses that walk around thinking that they're better than everyone else and judgmental. Okay. And
0: but that's political. how it lands with you. Well, I, I think that there are people that are doing it. You know, absolutely. You know, I. Yeah. It seems I, I, I don't know what they think when they're in the closet of their own home. You know, in the in the closet of the heart. But, yeah. but oh, they could be faking it till they make it. But there's certainly, certainly what we saw in the story of the Hebrew uh, Bible that I told you today was God was like saying, yeah, I see these folks and I'm not happy a bit, you know, right.
2: I didn't say they don't exist. I'm just saying in in this area, would we all say, oh, there's room for, because that's how, especially we're, I think we're raised in the churches to have humility, but I, I think that the point today earlier, I used your phrase Gail, of theori- uh, theological bludgeoning, is that this stuff is tough for us now because we were raised in this judgment of heaven and hell and not just for ourselves, but judgment of others. So it's hard.
1: Judgment of the church yeah. in the 1970s. <laughs> um. Yeah, you know, we had the movies. We had um, a Thief in the Night, which was talking about the rapture when all the Christians disappear and the rest of them are left to fend for themselves, and then, <laughs> for seven years. And then the follow-up to that was a Burning Hell, and then they had a follow-up to that, which was something about heaven. Um, It was not as popular as A Feet in the Night and A Burning Hell. Mm -hmm. And the main purpose of these films was to scare you into heaven.
3: Well, that's hardly effective.
1: (laughs) Was to scare you into wanting Jesus Christ as your savior because you didn't want to go through what the people that were left behind were going through or what the people in the burning hell were going through. So, I've always had issues with the movie because of the... I didn't think that scaring people into heaven was the way to go. Sinners in the Hands of an, an Angry God. We were all taught that. Um,
0: it was a sermon by jonathan edwards of that. jonathan edwards you, famous early a very famous preacher, back preacher, in the beginning of centuries ago, you know yes yeah. and early american preacher
1: this this if you really break down the sermon it's not a good sermon but it scared people into believing and there are stories about how somebody has stood up In churches and just read the sermon, which I think has got to be boring as anything, and how thousands of people have been saved this way. And, you know, I've always had a problem with that. I mean, I believed the basic tenets of the Baptist church, and I still hold to a lot of the basic tenets of the Baptist church. But I'm not, I don't identify as a Baptist anymore. I identify as a follower of Christ, and I try to live my life following Jesus' pattern. I don't always manage it, but I try. But growing up in that headspace, and that's the headspace that I was in. I went to a Baptist college, and the way we have interpreted the the, um, weeds and the fruit, the way we have interpreted the sheep and the goats for hundreds of years in Baptist doctrine. And I was in that for 53 years of my life and taught that consistently. And these concepts that you're teaching hit me like blasphemy because that's what's in my head. But then when I start breaking things down, some of it makes sense. Some of it doesn't make sense. I'm still weeding through some of it. What's truth? What's not truth? I have no idea. I'm very confused on some things. But that's okay. We're allowed to be. Jesus did say, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. So I'm asking for wisdom and seeking knowledge. I'm trying to get the door open, not to heaven, but to understanding, to open the door of my understanding.
0: Oh, that's beautiful, Shirley. That's actually beautiful. That's the space the spirit moves in. Yes. When we let go of our own certainty, you know, and I think part of the, What I was trying to bring out in the lesson today is how contradictory many of these passages feel and seem, right? So where do you go when it seems to contradict? You go to God. You go down a layer. Because what that means is that we are, you know, up in the froth of the ocean, where we're getting like all this battered and wind and waves bashing us this way and that, but if you sink down below that, the entire depth becomes more and more peaceful as you sink closer and into the spirit and into the things that are true. okay if 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 we think of that analogy as being water. The water is all that peaceful depth, right? All that stuff on the top is because of cross currents and, you know, wind and waves and moon pulling on things, (laughs) you know, we need to see scripture like that. All right. We need to allow for there to be froth. We need to allow that these stories are being pulled by cultural influences and people's interpretations, like Shirley has pointed out, you know, the, 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 the one of the beautiful things about the Baptists is their love of the scripture, you know, mm-hmm. whether or not I, bl- I agree with all their interpretations is beside the point. You know, these r- f- right-leaning conservative denominations of the scripture, like I do, you know, we we approach it differently. All right. And so if you're used to somebody up here on the froth, trying to make all the pieces match, and it's all got to be exactly the same, and we're going to figure it out, you know, that's going to feel very differently than where I teach. I teach at a deeper level. Okay, I'm trying to point you to God. And when I think about God and who God is throughout all of these scriptures, I'm asking, has God ever, from the beginning through to the end, approached us with a baseball bat and said, you have to be in a relationship with me. I'm going to That has not been God's way with us at all. God has consistently from the garden of Eden all the way through invited us into a place of love and abundance Mm -hmm. and healing. Even that first murderer, Anne. The 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 core family Adam and Eve Cain and Abel <laughs> the first um, family Cain was a murderer. Did God pound him into oblivion? No, he did not. Cain came to God and said, "I am afraid because of what I
1: have done." And God said. Don't worry.
0: I will put my mark on your forehead so everybody knows you belong to me. The good news can't be good news if it's not good news. Jesus did not come to tell us that because all of us are goats, we all know we're goats. All right. We all know we're goats. Jesus did not come to tell the goats, too bad, so sad. God's going to throw you out. No. Jesus said, He came and said, I see your goat. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to come alongside you. Okay. The goat's still a goat. All right. We're. we are all combination of sheep and goat, right? We, and that was the last question on the list. Was, aren't we all in both of these? I think then that Matthew 25 in this parable about the sheep and goats cannot be talking about whole people. It can't be. None of us is wholly a sheep or wholly a goat. It doesn't work like that. He's talking about
1: good and evil, and how that will be
0: separated and he's and what did he say in matthew twenty five the whole thing was it about worrying whether we're a sheep or a goat because of how we feel of what we know about ourselves. No, it was not. What did Jesus say to do about it in Matthew 25?
1: I'm drawing a blank. That's okay.
0: Jesus said, just do the things. If when I was thirsty, give me a drink. Oh, yeah. When I have no clothes. Give me clothes. Wrap me up and make me warm. If I have been convicted because of my goat-like behavior. <laughs> um, and comfort me. While I am serving my time. When I get ill.
1: Just look on, in on me. Make sure I'm okay.
0: This whole passage is not about trying to convict us as to whether we're a sheep or a goat. You know, it's about saying, Jesus is saying, what you do matters. And these are the things you do. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And this
1: is kind of funny. This goes with, um, today a friend of mine posted, a. it's just a little meme box on Facebook, you know, that, but it was um you know, how they'll put ones out to say to share a picture or whatever. This one um, said, I want to get to know you better. Share a song that means a lot to you. So I'm thinking through songs that mean a lot to me from Frank Sinatra's uh, Strangers in the Night, which I used to sing as a lullaby to my oldest son. But then I got to thinking about other songs that meant even more to me than that. And one thing led to another and I ended up with Oh yeah, that song. There's a song called Do They See Jesus in Me? Mm. And it was a very popular song, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, maybe. No, longer than that because when I was in college. So uh, we're talking late 70s, early 80s. But this song, um there's no doctrine in it. There's it's totally do people see Jesus in me? Do I live the way he lived? Do I walk the way he walked? That, you know? And, you know, do I point people to Jesus? And I listened to it again today and I went, yeah, this is what we've been talking about from the very beginning of this Bible study when we started in Genesis. We have been talking about living our life in such a way that we emulate Jesus yep that's I mean that's been the main even in the Old Testament, we were looking forward to living our life the way Jesus taught because I mean that's what was taught in the Old Testament too living. Not a life of judgment, but a life of acceptance, and a life of love, and a life of peace, and a, you know. And I'm, I'm, and so that's the song I ended up posting to her was, "Do they see Jesus me. And I'm thinking, you know, this song means something totally different to me now than it meant to me when I was in college. That is um, interesting. It's not am I beating people over the head with scripture? It's not. Am I showing them their sin? It's in my loving them, Jesus.
0: Yes. The whole Bible is an invitation, a personal invitation to us from God. And if you notice the view of heaven and hell and the afterlife, has changed dramatically between the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and the New Testament, hasn't it? Very different. And I want to point out to you that in neither place did God seem to waste a lot of time trying to correct people's theology about the afterlife. God, for the people back in the Old Testament, who felt like, you know, Sheol was just the place of the dead. It's just like a graveyard. It's neutral. You know, you get, if you, if you get, you know, your rewards are here on earth, and you know, when you die, you live through your descendants and all that stuff. God didn't go back and try to, you know, fix that or tell them they were wrong or tell them they were right. God simply met them in that belief and worked with it to try to communicate with them that I am a different kind of God than everybody else's God. That is the same thing that's happening here in the New Testament with Jesus. Jesus isn't spending time trying to fix people's understanding of the afterlife. He's working within the cultural culture with stories they know and the way they believe about the afterlife. And he's just not arguing a lot about what that is, or is not. He's not even trying to reconcile it to the, old, to the Hebrew Bible, is he? He's just simply meeting people there and saying, okay, God is a different kind of God.
1: Our God is the God of the prodigal son.
0: Our God is the one who cares about whether you're haughty or not and whether you're just helping the p- people who are in need. That Just do that. Just tell people how much, not just tell them, show them how much God loves them. Period. The end. Stay in your lane. Don't try to fix them. Just love them. You know, Gail, when Shirley was talking,
3: I've said it before and I'll say it again. It reminds me of, spread the good word, and if necessary, use words. There you go.
0: So that feels like a good place to stop today. Um, I love you so much. Thank you, Gail, and everyone. Great discussion. Absolutely. Thank you all. Bye.
1: Bye. Bye.